0: Welcome to this episode of Heart Failure in Focus. I'm your host, Muthu Vadiganathan, and this podcast is hosted by Radcliffe Medical Education and is supported through an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Please note this podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. Welcome back to this episode of Heart Failure in Focus. My name is Muthu Vadiganathan, and I am delighted to be joined by a deep Dear friend and colleague, Dr. Tariq Ahmad, who is the chief of the section of heart failure at Yale Cardiology. He is a associate editor at Jack Heart Failure and is a leading voice at the intersection of implementation science, uh, clinical medicine, and uh, heart failure today. And I couldn't be more thrilled to have this, this conversation around implementation of medical therapies in heart failure care. Welcome and thank you again for joining us, Targ.
1: Thank you, Muthu, for inviting me. It's really an honor.
0: Perfect. So let's dive right in. Um, you know, implementation science has been around for really decades and has evolved conceptually uh, year after year and has been quite different in different disciplines of medicine. And broadly speaking, implementation and dissemination research has revolved around the uh, science and principles of evaluating the dissemination or uh, the use of effective therapies and practices in clinical medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And in cardiology, this has largely been in the realm of quality improvement and has largely been on a local basis um, in individual institutions. And so now we're seeing a shift in the cardiology space. And um, Tark, you've actually led uh, much of this, and I'm I'm really excited to have this conversation. And I'm curious to hear um, your thoughts on um, why you entered this space and why you think it was so important to especially add that element of randomization, which is fairly unique to the studies that you've conducted in this space, um, to really add rigor um, to the evaluation of implementation science practices.
1: Thank you so much for that question. So I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, when I was a fellow, I was deeply involved in uh, biomarkers and heart failure, uh, specifically novel biomarkers, uh, secondary to N-Troponin P. Um, what I noticed was that despite them being approved and being readily available, no one was ordering them. Um, After that, uh, there was a flurry of activity uh, in terms of new novel therapeutics for heart failure, and uh, in fact you have some of the seminal publications in that area about how effective they are at reducing death and hospitalization and and just general suffering for probably the most important uh, healthcare issue we have today in the U.S. but study after study showed that no one, uh, that very few people were using these medications. So I think that realization that, you know, we're generating really good data um, uh, on the translational side and on the uh, clinical trial side, but uh, it's really not being implemented at the bedside, got me thinking about what the best uh, uh, methods would be to test out uh, ways to answer those questions. Um, just as an aside, my wife is a uh, heads up the Center for Behavioral Economics at the School of Management here, and they were doing several studies with uh, with companies on how to implement uh, um, you know data that's out there um, uh, for their customers. So there is a lot out there outside of cardiology in, in using these kind of novel uh, you know methodologies to to test interventions. Um, and obviously from my background at the DCRI and seeing how clinical trials are done and the the importance of randomization, it was absolutely important to test any of these interventions that are going to change practice or nudge, uh, clinicians in a randomized fashion. Uh, as you know, uh, much of the quality improvement work does not happen, uh, in a randomized fashion. So you're always left with this, um, uh, with this information that may or may not help patients. And sometimes it, it, it sounds really good, but what we've seen in cardiology is that many things can sound good, but they don't necessarily uh, like help patient care. So, you know, with, with that background in clinical trials and seeing the disconnect between the information that was being generated on the science side and how it was not getting to patient care, I think it was pretty Clear to to me and my team that we had to test uh, behavioral nudges or, or uh, interventions that will increase these these you know uptake of of life saving therapies at the bedside in a randomized fashion, and that's what led to uh, you know reveal HF and prompt HF and all the rest of the prompt studies that are ongoing.
0: That's wonderful, wonderful, and um, really a, a very nice confluence of expertise. and um, And I couldn't be more excited for you to be leading these trials. Um, so let's, uh, if you could share a little bit about these trials, uh, just in a broad sense of the PROMPT trials and Reveal HF, um, and uh, where you are in this journey, because it's really been a uh, wonderful to see as an external observer of the the stepwise advances that you've put forth with these trials. Thank you, Muthu.
1: So, you know, starting off with Reveal, that was the study that was most exciting to me because as a resident and a fellow, I had done a lot of work on creating risk scores. And the belief within cardiology has always been that if you can predict patient outcomes better then clinicians will make better choices and that will improve patient outcomes. So for the first time, we tested that hypothesis in a randomized fashion. Uh, We randomized uh, inpatients to their clinicians getting information on their one-year prognosis. And these were patients with uh, heart failure uh, with with fairly uh, 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 dire prognoses. We had uh, mortality uh, rates in the 20% range, which is pretty high at one year. And we found that, the provision of this information to frontline clinicians made absolutely no difference to their clinical decision-making or patient outcomes, which was very important um, because we now have uh, a somewhat a challenge to that paradigm as uh, about whether just giving clinician information itself is going to change their behavior. Now, this has been known from outside cardiology for a long time. My wife tells me this all the time, that if you give uh, you know, clinicians or customers—just information itself. Generally, that's not enough to change behavior, which is what led us to the prompt trial. So, the Prompt HF Outpatient Trial that we presented at ACC earlier this year uh, gave clinicians information about their heart failure patients that's relevant to uh, to modifying guideline-directed medical therapies. So we asked clinicians, what's the information that you need to know to make those decisions? And that includes blood pressure, creatinine levels, uh, ejection fraction. And we essentially told them that, you know, your patient, your individual patient is on these medications that they should be on. And these are the medications that they should be on that they're not on. And if you press this button, you will be able to prescribe those medications. So we made it very easy for clinicians. We essentially you know, gave them the information they needed, and then made it very easy for them to make the decision. And as you saw with the results in the outpatient uh, study, we found that it dramatically uh, improved uh, uptake of guideline-directed medical therapy in a very short period of time. Uh, We have an ongoing inpatient prompt acute heart failure trial to see if these prompts can improve uh, guideline-directed medical therapy and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction at discharge amongst that high-risk patient population that's admitted to the hospital, uh, and that has almost completed enrollment of uh, more than 1,100 patients. Uh, my friend and colleague and I, uh, Nihar Desai here, uh, and I led uh, prompt lipid uh, that has been completed, and that's going to be uh, a late breaker at AHA this year that also uh, uh, essentially prompted clinicians to get their patients on lipid-lowering therapy. Uh, we have other studies such as prompt MRA uh, to try and get uh, patients who have uh, who who are on guideline directed medical therapy other than MRA on MRAs, uh, for example, which is a major gap in um, in use of guideline therapies., uh, So these are just a few of the studies that we are doing. Um, I think that uh, this is just uh, uh, the tip of the iceberg, uh, because there is a lot of um, lot more uh, nuance that we need to build into future studies uh, as we kind of really progress towards the learning healthcare system that uh, uh, that uh, uh, we envision in this country.
0: Terrific, terrific to hear, uh, Tarek, and congratulations to you and your team. Um, in in really advancing uh, this realm of science, and I'm you know I'm curious you know we um, when we are practicing on the wards or in clinic um, we sometimes are inundated by digital alerts um, and so some of these EHR prompts have been met with some fatigue from the clinicians' perspective um, and even considered kind of noise in the background of. Uh, the usual workflow. So what set the prompt platform apart and and how did you really uh, fine-tune this to actually deliver effective alerts um, uh, as you saw in your initial trials? That's a a really good question. So um, as as you
1: may have experienced and many other people who have electronic health records uh, experience, uh, you're constantly getting inundated by Uh, alerts, um, almost all of which are never uh, studied in any rigorous fashion and they're never turned off. So once they're turned on, they're just there in the ecosystem uh, causing patient burnout and there's good data for that. Um, The other point that is important to make is that sometimes these alerts, um, they could be well-meaning but they can actually lead to worse patient outcomes. So my colleague here, uh, uh, Barry Wilson, AKA uh, uh, Methods Man uh, on Twitter um, did a study where he randomized uh, patients to their clinicians getting information on whether they had AKI, so acute kidney injury. And what they found was that this alert actually was associated with worse outcomes at one of our non teaching hospitals. So if you give clinicians information that they may know not, and you don't tell them what to do with it, uh, you can't really predict what what's going to happen. Uh, it could be nothing or it could actually even hurt patients. So with that in mind, we designed the prompt HF trials with clinicians uh, helping with the design. So we had several heart failure clinicians sit down with us and we um, you know, we we asked them what they look for in the alert. Um, when should the alert fire? And they said it should fire when we we're putting in orders for our patients, so not uh, you know, during the the visit. Um, so we, we put that, uh, you know, into the design. Uh, we, we created the design so it's user-friendly within the constraints of what Epic would allow us. So we really kind of had a period where um, we, we got input from frontline clinicians and designed the, the prompts accordingly. And I think that that's uh, one of the reasons why it helped uh, uh, improve uh, guideline-directed medical therapy. Um, of course, um, there is uh, there's still a large percentage of patients who were not prescribed guideline-directed medical therapy. We were not close to 100%, and that is something we need to understand as we, um, you know, surveyed the clinicians who were involved in the study. We asked them still, like, what the barriers were uh, to prescribing these medications Um, and, uh, we, we continue to improve, uh, these methods in order to get uh, us closer to what I know you've shown in so many of your studies, where if you get people on all the medical therapies that they should be on, you can really add, um, you know, several years, if
0: not decades to their lives. Absolutely Tark, And, um, you know, I, I suspected that you had such broad, uh, stakeholder involvement in in the design of your your smart prompts. And, you know, I I suspect, um, you know, many institutions, many teams are thinking about building these implementation science efforts locally. And I'm curious to hear what your advice is um, to perhaps uh, budding teams, especially early career investigators, setting out in trying to develop rigorous approaches locally? And how especially did you really assemble a diverse multidisciplinary team at Yale? So that's an that's a, a incredibly important question. Because
1: uh, first, I would say that uh, to succeed in this space uh, that is a, a little bit uh, atypical in terms of pathways, uh, you have to have a combination of grit and hustle. Uh, which, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you will kind of come across people who will say that this is difficult to implement, Uh, you know, you you should uh, use more traditional pathways because the difficulty with this kind of research is that it spans across um, more traditional kind of implementation science researchers who are uh, traditionally kind of uh, uh, not, uh, uh, you know, embedded in clinical medicine and on the operational side, uh, in, in the hospital setting where it is all operations and, and uh, they're not really as involved or interested uh, in randomized controlled trials. So we really had to get buy in from the chief informatics officer of uh, Yale New Haven Health, Alan Shaw, who thankfully was a really kind of forward thinking uh you know, supportive guy. We got buy-in from the CTSa here at uh, at Yale, the YCCI, because they were uh, interested in, um, in in you know improving care across the healthcare system. And then we had to get buy-in from uh, from Eric Velasco, our chief of cardiology, to kind of really help us out. So it was really across the different um, parts of uh, of an academic healthcare system that allowed for this to happen. And then most importantly, uh, I was lucky enough to have a colleague like Barry Wilson uh, who really understands uh, uh, how to do randomized trials within the electronic health record at a a level that that few people are able to do. So uh, really what I would tell young investigators is that uh, you're going to have to uh, go outside uh, the bounds of traditional uh, uh, academic cardiology and, and really kind of work with the people on the operational side of any healthcare system uh, in order to be able to do these studies. And then obviously uh, you'll have to be patient because there is a different language that people speak um, who are not uh, doing academic research because for them, uh, you know, it's important that uh, any kind of interventions don't uh, interfere with uh, care delivery.
0: Yeah. Wonderful perspectives. And um you know, last question here, um, and uh, this is uh, really borrowing now your uh, unique lens as not only a clinician, not only a clinical trialist, and not only an implementation science researcher, but really trying to reflect now on our overall therapeutic development pathway. And traditionally, there has been much less investment in uh, in terms of this, this latter end of the spectrum of uh, implementation and dissemination, and much more front-loading in terms of um, early uh, therapeutic uh, identification, testing in more traditional clinical trials. And so how does this uh, evolve, and and do we need to actually rethink and reshape the traditional drug development pipeline um, in the U.S. and worldwide?
1: Absolutely, Muthu. That is such an important question, and it might be one of the most important questions in all of, you know, progress in cardiology in general. So, as you know, in heart failure, there's been this frustration where you have a large, you know, a large multi-center clinical trial um, generally published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and there's a lot of pomp and splendor around that, and then the uptake is, is dismal. And there is a huge need to be able to connect that discovery with these implementation efforts. So if I were, you know, running things, um, I would have the implementation aspects of of any therapeutic um, aligned very closely with with, uh, the uh, results of any large discovery uh, trial. uh, we are in the process of linking together uh, numerous centers across this country and Europe uh, that have uh, EPIC uh, as their EHR to create a consortium of, uh, of, uh, heart of, of the uh, EHR so that we can do implementation trials on a large scale. Uh, so just at Yale, for example, we were able to randomize a few thousand people in a year uh, when we get all these uh, different centers on board, you could uh, easily be able to randomize, you know, 10, 20, patients within a within a month, um, and you could really kind of see how this way of embedding implementation studies within traditional trials could lead to rapid dissemination and implementation of any kind of uh, successes um, uh, on the uh, on the on the kind of traditional uh, clinical trial uh, front. Uh, the final thing is that you know more, you know, this more than almost uh, anyone that traditional clinical trials are getting more and more expensive to do. And one of the reasons for that is that we just don't have um, an infrastructure within uh, the US and Europe to be able to do uh, clinical trials in a cost-effective manner. Um, And I think that really also uh, impacts implementation where uh, if more and more of the Actual, you know, enrollment is outside of uh, of these countries. Then uh, you see slower implementation in the U.S. Uh, and Europe. So I think by building out these uh, uh, these kind of uh, linked uh, um, healthcare systems that are able to do uh, rapid kind of clinical trials, you could foresee a future where uh, you know you can have central IRBs involved and really do quote unquote, traditional uh, clinical trials in a more, much more efficient and cheaper fashion. So you actually can get that information you need. And that will also impact drug development because drug companies will, will not uh, see the bar to entry into heart failure, for example, as so difficult that they'll move away from heart failure. So sorry for the long winded uh, answer. It's something that I am quite passionate about because I think if you continue to go down the path that we've gone uh, you know uh, in the past Um, we we just not have the investment in in uh, drug development for heart failure specifically uh, because the current infrastructure requires the upfront cost to be so high and the implementation is so low afterwards that most drug companies just don't see this as an economically viable path.
0: Yeah no thank you Tarek and it was uh... So so important for um, for me and our listeners to hear that um, I certainly share that vision and that redesign effort um, at a global scale, and I think it's a much needed uh, advancement um, to reshape our therapeutic pipeline. Um, I would only add that um, all of us should keep our eyes wide open, especially at adjacent disciplines um, that have had therapeutic advances that have had very strong early uptake, um, that have overcome these implementation barriers. Um, I'll give you the example of tersepotite, the latest advancement in obesity medicine, in which the early demand and uptake of the therapy has far, far exceeded expectations and has really been one of the most successful launches of any cardiometabolic medicine. And so I think we can learn from uh, the lessons of success stories like terseptide, um, and I think in, in part, it's because of these broad, broad um, uh, partnerships, as well as this interlinked ecosystem, that obesity medicine and drugs like terseptide are viewed very differently in the public eye compared with, say, the newest and latest advances in heart failure care, and that is uh, part of the task at hand um, and part of the challenge that we have to undertake um, as we move forward so um, our time is up I, I would love to have continued this conversation um, and I really look forward uh, to your upcoming science Tariq and I greatly appreciate your time and thank you to our listeners and please look out for our next episodes of Heart Failure in Focus. Thank you Muthu this was a lot of fun. Perfect thank you so much Tarek.